Welcome to On Aeon, an award-winning podcast featuring conversations between colleagues on, well, Aeon. This week, we hear from Michael Manalakis for a discussion on the rise and risk of GLP-1s. And now, this week's host, Tracy Spencer. Hi there, I'm Tracy Spencer, and I serve as the National Practice Leader at Aeon in the pharmacy space. I've been in this industry for 25 years, and I've held positions at national pharmacy benefit managers, as well as various pharmacy consulting firms. I would say over the last 25 years, I've never seen a pharmacy industry as dynamic as it is today. Uh, And that's saying a lot because I generally feel like I learn something new every day in the the pharmacy space ever since I've, I've started my career. I'd say our clients are really at a crossroads right now in understanding how to treat certain disease states and how to address the spikes they're seeing in utilization and cost. I've asked Michael Manalakis to join me today, and he is a senior vice president on our pharmacy practice team. He's part of my leadership team and serves as our clinical innovation leader for the pharmacy practice here at Aon. Michael and I are going to be discussing GLP-1s and the current and future state of the pharmacy challenges faced by plan sponsors in relation to GLP-1s. So thank you for joining me, Michael. You're welcome, Tracy, and and thank you so much for having me today. It's really a pleasure to be here and and to have this opportunity to have this discussion. as you mentioned, I've been with Ann now for four and a half years, and I've but I've been a pharmacist for a long time. I've worked uh, as a community pharmacist at the beginning of my career, and then spent a long time in managed care pharmacy with a number of different PBMs. I'm actually frightening to say that it's been 30 years or so at this point in time. Um, and I've worked in just a variety of different capacities, and I'm just really excited to have this conversation today with you about the uh, about the GOP one drug class. Drugs that treat diabetes and weight loss aren't new, and they've been around for a really long time. But something that is obviously new is the GLP-1 dynamic. Can you talk about that a little bit further? Let's take a step back to take a a whole bunch of steps forward. And I love how you set this up as looking ahead and, and based on what we've learned, because we've learned so much. We are dealing with the drug class, the GLP-1s, that has been around for a while. It basically helps the body. It mimics a hormone in the body. It, it, it helps for treating diabetes and it, and it helps for managing weight loss and, and treating obesity by lowering blood sugar as one of its effects. Um, makes us feel full, we don't get hungry. Um, and those two effects, when you blend them together, um, they help us treat diabetes and, and they help us to treat obesity. Um, and for diabetes, this has really become a standard of care that the 2023 guidelines um, focus primarily on the use of GLP-1s for treating type, type 2 diabetes, unless there are other uh, comorbid conditions in, in place. But they have become a standard of care. And interestingly, and I think appropriately, employees are not questioning the use of GLP-1s for, for treating diabetes, where the challenge becomes is the, the cost associated with them. And then, of course, the other challenge is the cost associated with GLP-1s for folks that do not have diabetes. You know, perhaps they don't qualify for a weight loss version of these drugs. And employers over the course of the last year have been wrestling and raising um, some very challenging questions about how to manage the drugs, how to pay for them, um, how to allocate these drugs to individuals that are managing obesity. Um, you know, we talk about breakthroughs in drug therapy, and in, in a way, this breakthrough is, is it's, it's 
transformational. The the breakthrough piece um, is the fact that we you know we now have in clinical practice a drug that by all measures is safe and effective for treating obesity, um, and we're helping it individuals with this condition. Now, there are chapters probably still to be told about an adverse effect, but we'll see, and, and we continue to gather real world evidence, but we, we seem to have a safe and an effective drug. Um, and that's really good news because arguably we've never really had a, a safe and effective drug for treating obesity like the efficacy that the GOP-1s show. Um, but there's an overlay here. There's there's cost and there's prevalence concerns, and they're very they're in, they're interrelated in a very interesting way. Um, the drugs are expensive, absolutely flat out expensive, and 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 you know it can be a thousand dollars a month. You read that number; it's pretty accurate. It can vary a little bit if you're insured or underinsured or lack insurance. But it's that prevalence piece that that adds the layer of complexity because we've got so many people that that have that are either overweight or are, are obese as measured by body mass index. And the CDC numbers become a pretty common number. We know, you know 42% or so of US citizens fall into those categories. And th then comes the, the third challenge, the, the ethical concern. And this is where we say, you know, to the, the employer is asking us, you know, how do we do this fairly? Like, how do I treat people fairly? How do I allocate funds for these drugs? fairly? Um, how do I make decisions about who gets the drug? Um, and that's what the cost has created for employers. That's the challenge. It's that convergence of a, of a therapy that works, prevalence numbers that are incredibly high, cost that's incredibly high, and then this ethical question about fair distribution. So it, it's really a conundrum for our clients today. Michael, let's talk about the prevalence piece a bit more. You stated a number of 42%, and that number continues to rise um, every year. Uh, and obesity is not new in this country. We know AN's clinical perspective is that obesity is a disease and it should be treated. But then we have to look at what has happened with social media and the utilization associated with these drugs. To be clear, Michael, some of these drugs are not approved by the FDA for weight loss. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And Tracy, that's a, a really important distinction to be made that, that there are there are these are the, the same. They can be the same chemical ingredient, but the approval of the GOP one may be for treating diabetes and the approved. But the approval could also be for treating weight loss. And you have to qualify for each based on your condition and comorbid conditions that you may have. Um, but yes, there 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 are drugs. Um, um, not approved by the FDA for weight loss and they're just for diabetes. Then you compound that with, we have drugs that have been made household names by social media and various news agencies and, and so forth. From your perspective, Michael, how do employers balance this with fairness of coverage when they are seeing inappropriate utilization happening? It's an interesting question about inappropriate utilization. And, and it, it, I think before we jump into that and when we talk about those elements, let's spend a second just on the utilization that's happening. Tell us about from our pharmacy data, what are we seeing in terms of utilization over the course of the last year? Aon's data tells us that from 22 to 23, and this is just through the third quarter of 23, 
that utilization and costs of GLP-1s across for treatment of diabetes and obesity are on track to triple what they were in 22. And that's with only nine months worth of data. The, the numbers are astounding. Uh, and, and of course, our clients know this. Um, and, and, and so, you know, you asked me before about inappropriate utilization and, and, and you know, kind of fairness of coverage. And we, you know, we have to sort of look at the drivers of that, of that utilization. Direct-to-consumer advertising has become a force. Um, there's the, the impact of, of, of unofficial celebrity in endorsements via social media has been astonishing. Um, particularly in the with the as we look at the utilization rise of GLP ones, um, we yeah, we can look back at our data to November of twenty two, you know, pretty much a year ago at this point in time, and the beginning of December of twenty two when the drugs absolutely took off, and we know that that aligned with with social media impact at that particular time. It it, it has a really interesting effect and a concern on safety because we we also ask you know kind of where are folks receiving these drugs are they are they getting them from the manufacturer are they getting them from a, some other source and 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 that's that's concerning. Yeah, I think it's interesting, Michael, because the direct to consumer advertising, as it is out there today across different mediums, is so different than when the FDA first approved direct to consumer advertising. Um, you take that with the prevalency of of weight the weight loss concept in this country along with the obesity rates that you mentioned um but the social media posts by celebrities that um aren't aren't actual direct consumer <laughs> advertisements by the manufacturers have just brought a different level of awareness and demand of these medications it is indeed a very different day. That's it, perhaps we call it our new normal, um, and it, it's part of the vexing problems that that occur with this drug class and the associated challenges. We we have advantages, and we have all the gains that are made by this therapy class in, in terms of managing these conditions. But then we have the risk um, on the other side that can follow when people are starting to use products off label. It's uh, it's a it's a very different day. From my chair, the employers that I speak to, they discuss constantly that they've got to be doing something different here in order to make sure that they're managing the appropriateness of these drugs and the protocols associated with these drugs, uh, including appropriate pres prescribing. Um, Michael, again, you've seen our data. There's different types of provider specialties um, in our data and ones who historically would not necessarily be um, providers of care in the diabetes or obesity management space. That's one of the reasons that our employers and plan sponsors are struggling with the utilization of these drugs and really trying to understand how should they best manage them. And the other part of that, and, and you know, you think about it, and again, we you know, we talk about the ethical elements um, that are going on here. You focused us, rightly so, on the side of the ledger that's the prescribing side, the the act of getting access to the drug. You know, how are individuals qualifying for the drug? But then there's another piece to this, which is what drug am I getting? Um, and then this moves us into a, a concern that's been raised by the FDA about compounding pharmacies and the, the actual product you're receiving. The FDA has addressed this issue head on. Um, there's been some recent um, uh, in, in additional action by the FDA in, in, uh, on a, a 
compounding pharmacy in, in one of our states, and, and they are very concerned about it. They're taking action because we know that the product that's being distributed through the compounding pharmacies is not necessarily using the same ingredient that the manufacturer currently use, uses. And, and for the FDA and, and what they do for drug safety and efficacy in this country, that's a, that's a concern. It's a safety concern. Um, and it, it's a quality concern, and it, it ties directly to the product that somebody is injecting into their body, or perhaps taking as a pill form. It's a, it's a serious, serious safety matter. So, yeah, there's two pieces of concern going on here, but it, it harkens back then um, to you know to what our clients are thinking about. It all goes back to this demand. Um, you know, we have half of our clients roughly that are not covering these products today. And we have half of our clients, again, roughly that are covering these products today and all have been thinking over the course of the last year um, and, and essentially asking the same question, what do I do? And it's a great question. It, how do I manage these drug products? I've been, you know, some are saying I've been covering them for years. Um and, and in, in many instances, because these drugs, older drugs have been around for decades, they put them under coverage. They really didn't cost much. They raised no concerns. Um, they just really didn't even think about it until this year happened. Um, now they have newer high cost drugs appearing. You've already commented on the data points that we're seeing and the escalation in pricing and, and associated utilization. They're saying, where did this come from? Um, and there are those that aren't covering and they're feeling pressure. They're reading about how amazing these drugs are. They're, they may be feeling pressure from their employee base about getting access to weight loss drug coverage under their prescription drug plan. They know it's a disease and, and these clients are saying, what should we be doing? Um, and, and as you stated earlier, it's Anne's perspective that this is a disease and you should be covering this drug. The question then becomes, of course, how do you cover the drug? Um, all the worry points, the real safety risk points us right back to how do I do this right and how do I do it well? And that's what we've been thinking about over the course of this last year as the, the rise and, and the risks associated with this drug, the rise in utilization, the risk in financial exposure, the risk in safety. So what do we do and how do we cover it? And that's, the, that's where we are today. I completely agree with you. I think the struggle or the challenge that I consistently hear from employer groups in, in every one of these conversations is they understand that they are investing in benefits and investing in pharmacy benefits for their employees and their dependents. But their concern with this drug class comes into the fact that they don't have a good line of sight of the long-term clinical outcomes of these drugs. And what is the patient experience? How long will patients have to be on these drugs? Will they have to be on them for the rest of their lives to maintain their lower weight? It's that unknown that is continuing to concern them. And I would say with as much exposure that the social media has to the uh, results of these drugs, I would say there are there's a rise in the articles and information that's coming about saying that there is there are these side effects and what are those long term impacts of those side effects and and all of those are creating this these questions in the minds of employer groups as they're considering 
again, these long-term these long-term investments. We know that there's no long-term data yet uh, beyond kind of five years of, of clinical outcomes for these drugs. Um, and we also know that there's been studies and you know some more recent studies related to patient adherence on these drugs. And there really is no clear explanation as far as why patients become not adherent to these drugs or go off of these medications? Do they go off because it has worked um, and they are now at a, a healthy, sustainable BMI weight, however you want to, however you want to classify it. But, you know, I think when, when there's broad exposure to studies from an employer chair where they're seeing that a third of the, one of the studies in particular I'm thinking about is one that was published last summer, where a third of the patients stop being adherent within the first year of their treatment, um, or they or they stop them because of side effects, and that's employers just look at that and say that's that's not an investment. Um, how how do we better curtail that? And what what is the ROI on the investment that I'm making? The the, the question of of adherence, and we might even be able to think about it as like persistence on therapy. Right? Do I persist on the therapy? That's, that's a fascinating question. Um, and, and there are some employers um, that are out there thinking, are, are, are my employees going to continue to take these drugs? Um, will the side effects become a burden? Will cost become a burden? Um, and, and, you know, we, we have some studies that are out there um, showing a, a third are, are persisting on the therapy after a year. We see another study that says 40% are persisting on therapy after a year. We see another study that's or part of that one study that, that focuses on the fact that it only used to be like 10% that persisted on therapy. So suddenly 40% could look really good as opposed to it's not, you know, 100 or 90 that we might be hoping for, but it's another piece to the puzzle. And, it, and it's something that we, we have to be thinking about. And you raised the question about return on investment. Am I going to get a return on investment? And that's kind of a key question here. It's that, it's that you know, question on long-term gain. And, and and when you start to think about long-term gain, and, and these are the questions that were really early on being able to bump into an opportunity to begin to measure. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to lose weight. Um, I'm going to assume efficacy there. But did my hypertension go down? Did my diabetes improve? Did my hemoglobin A1C go down along with my weight? Did my type two diabetes resolve itself because I lost the weight? Or perhaps did I, and this is an even longer term view that we don't have a, a window to open on yet, um, was I able to avoid a knee replacement or a hip replacement? Was my musculoskeletal condition resolved? Um, and perhaps I didn't even need surgery. And that's certainly a hope here. And that's the return on investment. Because if I stayed in that obese state, I would have had the surgery. I would have had additional expense. Um, of course, that all ties into productivity as well. Yeah, ab absolutely. Let's um, let's dig into the the fairness piece if we if we could a bit more um, specifically related to weight loss. We know that Aon clients, about fifty percent of them, are covering weight loss medication today. Um, in the weight loss class. Um, the other 50% are not. Um, I would say there's, there's no doubt that 100% of those who aren't providing it today are considering 
what coverage they should provide and what that coverage should look like. Um, and again, what are the, the short and long-term, uh, I'll, I'll call them patient support elements to make sure that these drugs are successful and successful in the long-term, both short and long-term really, um, but they're inclusive of diet and exercise, what's that member cost share look like, um, really all of the elements that played into the clinical trials of these drugs originally being approved. Um, so the client is, you know, our clients are asking, what should they do? Um, what pieces should I be considering? And really, how do we do this holistically? Um, and fairness and equity, fairness and equity um, needs to be and, and generally is part of those discussions. You know, the 50-50 number that you used is, is, is really um, a good, accurate reflection. We've done some um, additional looking at the at the market space and looking across multiple PBMs and and they've been shared information with us about coverage and, and we see a range of 30% up to about 66% of plans that are currently covering these drugs. So it just adds a little bit of additional context there about 100% or nearly 100% of those lives under coverage are also being managed with prior authorization in place. Um, and, and just just a little bit of extra uh, extra detail there. But if we turn to fairness and equity for a second, such an interesting question. Uh, you know, just take <laughs> we'll take a really simple definition of fairness. So you're going to treat someone as they deserve to be treated. Um, I like that. You know, we <laughs> we all live that like that. What a better place the world would be. The person who has obesity, they have a disease. Okay, that's a fact. Um, a person with hypertension have a disease as a fact. Um, they have high blood pressure. If we leave them untreated, probably something, a negative or a bad health, health outcome is gonna, going to occur. Um, and that's going to occur secondary to a medical complication. So we ask the person with obesity, and <clears throat> this is what we're tending towards, and we're seeing this right now as sort of plan design elements begin to emerge. We say en enroll in a program, help them with their treatment but we don't ask anything of the person with hypertension. We just say, go get your drug, go to your doctor. Um, we're, we're saying to them, you do this one way, but obesity person, you do this a different way. We're gonna treat you differently. And so the question is, are we treating them in a way they deserve to be treated? But let's look at the flip side of that too, because there are disease states, um, disease categories that have programs associated with them that employers have adopted today and have had adopted for, again, the, the over two decades that I've been doing this, um, whether you call them compliance-based programs or compliance-based plan designs, um, you know, one of the things that comes to mind, um, diabetes, right, and the diabetes point solutions that are out there. Members have to be actively engaged, and I think the definition of active engagement can you know, can vary between the plan sponsor, but they have to be actively engaged to receive something. So they receive uh, an electronic meter. They receive, you know, that's fully electronic and, and Bluetooth. They re receive free test strips that go along with that electronic meter on a monthly basis based on their continued active engagement. And if they're not actively engaged, they don't get that. Um, you also think about some, let's say, you know, healthy mom or, or maternity programs where somebody's actively involved in it, and then there's additional benefits that they get by completing those programs. So 
how is how are those potentially different than what you're referring to? Feels different to me because it's you know, somewhat of a precursor. I'm still going to get coverage under my plan for those other conditions. I don't necessarily know if I'm going to get coverage under the plan or if, if, if I'm if I'm going to get it at all, or if the plan is even going to make a decision to add coverage. So we we, we push it back further and we say before the program, we 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 say we're not even going to give you the coverage under the plan because we don't yet know all the health outcomes. We don't yet know if people are really going to engage. They're, these are just really challenging questions here about how we treat obesity and how we think about obesity in comparison to other disease states. So the, you know, the worry in my mind and, and with just fairness in mind here, are we treating people in a way that we're trying to guide these individuals to success, to successful health outcomes. And some of our employers, you know, maybe trying to get them enrolled in a program that will you know, parallel with their drug treatment to position them for long-term sustained weight loss uh, to get those really good positive outcomes that we hope will occur. Um, or are we setting ourselves up for a scenario as drug costs continue to rise and become more and more challenging that we use that program requirement as a barrier for cost management purposes. That's the specter in my mind that looms out there. That creates the worry. And it just goes to the challenge of, of how is it that we define the ethical component as we manage the cost against the prevalence, as we try to account for the fact that these are new and they're amazing drugs and they really do work. It, it's, you know, it's in that bundle, that convergence that the questions all emerge and in, in how we, you know, how we service, how we treat these people. And they're the questions, frankly, that I've been having great questions with my clients as they try to think through what is it that I do here and how can I do this right and well? And that's um, I, that, that would be sort of how I look back at, at your challenge about those other programs, Tracy. And we know that, you know, employers are just struggling with the complexity of these decisions. Um, and explaining it to their, you know, their executives and and so forth. So I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit different here, Michael, for a second, and um, ask you to put this really at a high level summary for employers to for consideration. Um, so I guess let's let's imagine you're on an elevator <laughs> and you're standing next to uh, an employer plan sponsor, and they happen to mention that they're just bewildered at this point and not sure what they should be doing to address these drugs. I think you need to be thinking about cost. I think you need to be thinking about the prevalence of the condition. And I think you need to be thinking about fairness from a cost management perspective. We need to be thinking about how do we manage utilization? What kind of purchasing power do we have? How can we optimize our discounts? When we start to think about our prevalence, we start to think about how can those criteria be managed? We start to think about bringing in that third party that comes alongside to manage both utilization and, and the lifestyle pieces. You have to be thinking about, are we sensitive culturally? How are we taking into account racial preferences and body type differences and making sure that we're treating people in the population in a consistent manner? And that leads us right into the fairness piece. And if, uh, if you can sit back and when you make your recommendation, you're recognizing that your costs are going to go up, you're hoping for good positive outcomes in the out years, 
that you're accounting for the prevalence and that you're being fair about it. You feel good about what it is that you're doing because it's going to cost you more money in the short term and the doors open at 30. That would be my elevator pitch. And again, I think it's it's that balance of costs and where are those costs and these costs would specifically be the rising costs would be on the pharmacy side but then with those longer term outcomes and financial benefits happen across the health plan in general well you you are such a critical part of of this for our clients michael so i i thank you for that and appreciate the the final insightful summary for those of you who are listening uh if you liked what you heard please uh, feel free to follow us on linkedin we also have a pharmacy page that's called Aon Pharmacy Solutions um, on LinkedIn, um, where members of our team share uh, industry insights, uh, address the challenges that are are faced by clients in the pharmacy space, uh, along with recommendations on how to address uh, many of those challenges. That wraps up our discussion here for today. Uh, Thank you all so much for listening and look forward to the next episode of Aon Aon coming soon. This has been a conversation on Aon and the rise and risk of GLP-1s. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this latest episode, tune in soon for our next edition. You can also check out past episodes on Simplecast. To learn more about Aon, its colleagues, solutions, and news, check out our show notes and visit our website at aon.com.